When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis in all the debates you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry and with me is Duncan Castles. As always, today is your questions answered. And we've got a kind of continental but also domestic flavour to that. And we're going to start with some news from uh, Duncan on Wolverhampton Wanderers, uh, specifically about their transfer policy in the window which has just closed, and as well as going forward. Duncan Wills beaten 5-2 by Chelsea at Molyneux last weekend. Uh, they've entered into new territory uh, in terms of their Europa League campaign. How is this impacting upon a team who was were so effective last season in performances against not just their rivals around them, but also bigger clubs as well. Yes, they play um, their first Europa League game proper of this uh, campaign tomorrow night against Braga, um, although they've already played six games in reaching um, the Europa League um, this season, uh, qualifying games against Crusaders, um, Punic, Yerevan and the hard one against Torino. And it's the hard one against Torino that's been a big factor um, in where Wolves are this season. Um, as you say, they've had a very poor start to the Premier League. They haven't won a game yet. They've only lost two, um, drawn against Manchester United, but a big defeat against Chelsea and they are second bottom at present. Um, and they're very aware that a lot of players in their squad are not performing to the levels that they have done over uh, the last season, in particular in the Premier League and also the last two seasons in the, their championship um, promotion season. And um, the, the interesting aspect in this is that talking to people at Worlds, they said one of the reasons they, they didn't spend as heavily in the summer as you would expect, given that they you think, well, they have this Europa League games to play, therefore you need to build the squad up because they were playing with a shallow squad last season to cope with Europa League, was that they didn't actually know whether they would be in the Europa League proper um, when the English transfer window closed. So that closed 9th of August, the deadline. We all still had to play Torino home and away um, to secure their formal place in the group stages of the Europa League. And they, were, and they felt that Torino was going to be a difficult game. Certainly no guarantee that they get through. Therefore, um, to go and buy players and broaden out the squad in, with, with no guarantee that they actually needed that bigger squad for Europa League games was a difficult decision to make. In the end, they decided only to recruit um, Patrick Catroni from Milan forward and um, Jesus Vallejo, uh, the uh, centre-back from Real Madrid they've taken on loan who they haven't been able to use properly yet told us a 
will they expect him to be a good signing, but he's going to need a couple of months to adapt to the Premier League. Um, so they're, they're not exactly uh, what they would like to have. Um, they did, I'm told, make a, um, an, an interesting effort to sign uh, one of Benfica's centre-backs, Ruben Gias, in the window, uh, which would have been, if if they managed to secure the deal, uh, quite an impressive one, given he's on the list for some of the top clubs in European football. But uh, the price Benfica were asking for the player was too high, and eventually they didn't do that deal again with this indecision over whether they need Europa League um, players or not. So there are two aspects to this going forward. They know they're under pressure and they know results are going to be difficult um, for the coming weeks. They will definitely spend in January um, to ensure that they have the stronger squad uh, to make up for the, the difficulty they've had at the start of the season. So look for them to be significant players in this January market. I think the other aspect here is it's just another element of... Um, doubt and problems caused by the Premier League's unilateral decision to have a, a deadline that that comes into play before the Premier League season starts and is three weeks ahead of the European deadline. Um, it doesn't apply to many clubs because you only usually have one English club who have to go through qualification process for Europa League. But you can see that clearly that they're at a very significant disadvantage in that they, weren't, they, they had to make decisions about recruitment for the season before they actually knew how many competitions they'd be formally playing in in the season. And that has to be uh, seen as a major issue with an early deadline. And, and it's, it's, it's all, almost po- posing an impossible quandary for a club to answer. Do you go and buy players um, in the expectation you might get into the tournament and then find you, you're, oh, you've got too broad a squad and you're paying too many players and you've spent too much money with the, all the ramifications that can have in terms of, as a manager, giving players uh, the right amount of playing time, not having um, upset players in the squad. We've talked about how one of the elements in Javi Gracia losing his job at Watford was that Watford carries such a, a, a large squad, 30 um, first-team players at present, and Gracia wanted that number reduced because it's difficult to to deal with having too many players in the squad. So you, do you go down that route, take extra players, or do you stick to what Wolves did very effectively last season, which is keep a shallow squad, um, use those players that you trust in a lot, get that team, under, uh, team understanding on the pitch, um, which is great if you're only playing league matches, but when you have the possibility of Europa League, although undecided, you take the risk that Wolves has taken and now they're paying for it in a much worse start to the Premier League season than I think most people would predict it given the, the obvious quality of the players they have. It should be pointed out, Duncan, of course, that they did make uh, some loan deals permanent. So in terms of actually spending money and signing players, um, there was a significant investment Um by Wolverhampton Wanderers in players that had they had been on loan last season. Um, it's an interesting quandary whether or not it's indecision or negligence on their part regarding the um, decisions which were being taken on the basis of whether or whether they don't qualify for Europa League. But I'd ask you this as well. Um, City sources say that 
Fosun, who own Wills, are looking at, to, to attract an investor to indemnify some of their um, uh, losses and investment in the club, maybe up to 20% stake in the club is up for sale. Um, now, that obviously has uh, an unstabling um, influence on what spending and budgets are. Do you think that's been maybe an issue as well, given the poor timing, if you like, of Fosun going to uh, into the investors market to look for more money into the club? I think um, there's a bit of misunderstanding about this story. I've asked um, whether Wolves were for sale, as some people have been writing, um, whether a percentage of the, the capital is for sale. Um, the guidance I have on that is yes, Fosun may sell a small stake, 10 or 20%, similar um, to the way that Abu Dhabi sold a percentage, small percentage to China of um, their holding in Manchester City. But they will, they'll do it um, because they're being asked to broaden their investor base. I think it's a political move within China. Other people in China want to get involved in the club because they've seen the success of um, of Wolverhampton in their first season in the Premier League and have asked to be allowed to invest in it. And as we know, um, much of the investment in foreign clubs by Chinese uh companies and individuals over the last few years has been driven by the Chinese government. The, the Chinese president made a statement saying um, he wanted to advance uh, Chinese football, wanted to build a team uh, capable of winning the World Cup, wanted to host the World Cup in China and uh, freed up a large amount of capital to be invested both in the Chinese Super League but also into the buying of uh, European clubs in recent years. So, um, yes, I think you, you're likely to see a small percentage of Wolves being sold to an investor um, in the coming year, but it has nothing to do with Fosun's um, commitment to the club and uh, in terms of their investment in the, the club itself. It's, it's a separate matter. They're, they're prepared to put more money in and spend more on players. Um, the they, you know, their stated aim is to win the Premier League down the line. They believe that they can, in many ways, follow the, the Manchester City model and with intelligent selection of uh, managers, coaching staff, players, building the project um, in a an in intelligent fashion, they think they can get to the very top of the Premier League down the line. Whether that's possible or not, we'll see. But uh, you have to say they made... Um, a very impressive start in the in the way that they got out of the championship playing high quality football and the way they um, they went through their first Premier League season and I don't see any risk of them going down um, because of the quality of players they have uh, I, and you have this response immediately they get into trouble in the, the early stages of a Premier League season, it's going to be, yeah, we will spend money in the January window to broaden out the squad and ensure uh, we're still there and the long-term project goes on as planned. Well, good news for the uh, the pack of the Wolves um, from Duncan Castles there regarding investment in players in January and I think trying to remedy what has been, by their standards, a poor start in the Premier League campaign, but obviously... Uh, juggling the dual challenges of Europa League football as well as domestic competitions. 
It is your questions answered, of course. I'll move on to the wonderfully nicknamed Ed McDuffery from uh, a town close to where I was born and grew up, uh, Hamilton, a wonderful home of Hamilton academicals. Now, Ed, even though he's in Hamilton, has got a very, very cosmopolitan outlook on football because his question's about none other than Real Madrid. And Ed asks Duncan, what about this mess at Real Madrid? Zidane is having some problems with a dreadful start. He seems to be butting heads with President Florentino Perez. Fact remains that Madrid have spent a fortune with little to show, albeit so far in the season, we have to point that out. And with Mourinho waiting at the Dole office. The first thing I'd have to say is the image of Jose Mourinho waiting to pick up his unemployment benefit at a Dole office while taking a phone call from Florentino Perez about the job is one that I cherish greatly. Uh, Duncan, <laughs> what would be your response to the wonderful Ed McDuffery uh, with regards to the latest news on the future of Zinedine Zidane? And indeed, of course, as we have reported on the transfer window, the friction between the president and his head coach. Yes, look, um, not a wonderful start for Real Madrid. Um, their third in La Liga, um, still unbeaten but dropped points that you'd expect them to take against weaker clubs. Um, almost dropped points again at the weekend from a from a 3-0 um, lead. Um, interesting game for them tonight in the Champions League against Paris Saint-Germain um, with, uh, with all kinds of uh, backstories and side issues going on in that uh, particular fixture. Um, obviously, with uh, Neymar, who won't play in that game, um, being one of the targets that Florentino Perez had tried to, to sign and, and went quite a long way towards trying to get um, to Madrid in the summer um, with, with various uh, Real Madrid players offered to Paris Saint-Germain um, and uh, individuals like Thibaut Courtois thrown into the equation and Courtois refusing um, to go to Paris Saint-Germain as part of that deal. My understanding, and I'm hearing this from multiple sources, is that essentially Zidane's future is extremely limited. Um, people expect him to be out of a job. People well informed about Real Madrid expect him to be out of a job during the course of this season. Um, I think the only way he can avoid that is to have um, an exceptional run of results. So he needs to start winning games like the, the tie they have tonight. And he needs to get to the top of the um, of the Spanish league um, and take the title of Barcelona. Um, and he needs to be look like he's going to be in a position to do that um, basically as soon as possible. So it's probably a help that Barcelona have lost one of their games and, and sit below him in the table at the moment. But the, the, the reason for this, the fundamental reason, is that friction that Ed um, refers to between Zidane and Florentino Perez, um, not happy with each other's behaviour in the transfer market. Um, Madrid not, have not performed on the field since Zidane came back from his um, self-chosen sabbatical uh, to take over the team last season. Um, you, if you look at Madrid's injury list at present, it's a long one and questions are being asked about the quality of Zidane's training. Um, 
he was involved in you know very public dispute with Gareth Bale in the in the summer transfer windows. He tried to get him out of the club, but actually had to ended up being stuck with Bale when Bale refused to move to China. Um, I the, all the noises from Madrid are that Zidane's time is measured in um, possibly not even months, but weeks. And the only way he fixes that is to win and win and win again. Um, as for the candidate to replace him, I think Ed is, is right um, that Josie Mourinho is a very, we've said this in the transfer podcast many times, um, Josie Mourinho is a obvious candidate. He has done that job before, done the job very successfully, um, led Madrid to their uh, a record-breaking season in terms of points, wins, goals scored, took the title off Pep Guardiola's Barcelona, saw Guardiola resign his position and leave Barcelona as a result of that, um, has a good relationship with Valentino Perez, was invited to return to Madrid last season, but refused to do so because he wanted to carry on at Manchester United. Um, all the pieces are in place there for should Florentino Perez push the button and get rid of Zidane, that the phone call will be the, that goes in will be the one to Jose Mourinho. Um, not unlikely to be outside a dole office at any um, point in time over the, the, the coming weeks and months. I suspect it might be on Jose's terrace in his home outside of uh, his holy home overlooking this, the Mediterranean Sea, Duncan, rather than the dole office. Um, is there a dole office in Kensington and Mayfair? I'm not sure. <laughs> In Mayfair. <laughs> um, I, that would be his local not, one, obviously. Not that I've ever um, encountered when walking around that particular area of London. On it'd, be lo- it'd be lovely if there was just to see the people turning up, you know, said listers, people who may have fallen out of grace. Um, Roman Abramovich. Who knows? Who knows? Employment, uh, rather than... That what than uh, the president of Russia instructs him to do <laughs> to under, undermine the British economy. Uh, he can claim his own uh, unemployment benefit. I think it's significant as well, Duncan, because um, one of the things which um, differs in Spain and particularly in Madrid to other countries is you can test the water and the temperature uh, at Real Madrid by reading the right people. And by that, I mean mostly three particular senior writers on Marca, the Sports Daily, who all have been given licence, it seems, by Florentino Perez to attack uh, Zidane, his tactics, uh, his team selections, his decision-making with regards to players going on loan or players sold. And uh, that has begun uh, to intensify over the last two weeks. And it's intriguing um, to watch that, and straight away, um, one of those writers is, is is putting the boot in by pointing out that um, Santiago Solari, the man who replaced, uh, sorry, who Zidane replaced, won 22 out of 32 games in charge, which was a win rate of 68.8%, and that Zidane has won only seven of 15 league games since his return which is a 46.7% win rate. And Zidane knows uh, the territory of both the Spanish press 
and where Florentino operates in that. He must look at that and think, yeah, I'm going to have to either, you know, I'm going to have to improve everything or I can see what's in my future and that future is very short term. Exactly that. Um, it's, as I say, it's uh, it's win or die, I think, for Zidane at Real Madrid at present and um, an, obvi- and an obvious candidate to replace him. Um waiting for that phone call from Florentino Perez. Who has his number on speed dial, we are reliably informed. So, from Josie on the dole to um, a very interesting question from uh, a good friend of the Transfer Window podcast, Trequarista. We should mention there's a trademark on that, but he also sometimes goes by the name of Grant. And he has asked uh, a very interesting um, question on the new contract that Manchester have awarded David De Gea. Now, you all know, and you're bored of us saying it, but we do bring the news before it becomes news. And we did that last Friday when Duncan told you that the contract with De Gea and Manchester United had been signed. Uh, it had been a long time coming. And obviously... It, it was just waiting for it to be announced officially. And of course, that video must have taken about three days to make. Very interesting, Duncan, that uh, I just an aside here. To hear his opening sentence in the uh, I've signed this brilliant video was, I think something like, don't believe the rumours, which seemed a very negative way to begin what was a positive story. Anyway, that's just an aside. Uh, let's go to um, Grant's question, which is, I query the validity of De Gea being handed the most lucrative contract in Premier League history, which equates to £25.5 million a season or £490,000 a week, around 13.5, he's very good with his figures, or €15 million net a season or £260,000 a week net. Seems ludicrous for a player who appears past his best. Um, Is that a correct... um, perception of the deal, Duncan, or given that De Gea historically has been Manchester United's best player over the last eight, nine seasons, is it reward for the fact that, okay, he's not been having a great time in the last nine months, but obviously their faith remains strong that he is the goalkeeper who will guide them through the next five seasons? Well, I mean, I think Grant's spot on with his numbers. Um, so it is the best part of £500,000 a week that that deal that De Gea has been given by Manchester United to stay amounts to. Um, I would question whether um, he's passed his best. Um, I think that's going to be the where the real judgment comes down on Ed Woodward. Um, and we'll go through how the process of, of, of how this happened, that De Gea got such a, a large contract. But it, the judgment will come, I think, on how De Gea beha- behaves and plays during the four years um, guaranteed um, element of this contract. And to just add in, there is no release clause. Um, I didn't mention that on Monday, but... Uh, now, one of the, the things we were talking about previously in the podcast would, would would United give him a deal in which there was a release clause? 
uh, to secure him for this season and, and um, satisfy him, get him playing well again, but give him that option of, of moving elsewhere. I'm told there is none in this contract. He is absolutely secured to the club unless they decide to sell him for um, a price that suits them. I think there's a definite risk involved and uh, talking to you know important people in football, one of their assessments of this deal is, is it the right time to give De Gea such a lucrative contract? What message do you send out when a player's form has dropped, as it had, and you make him the best paid player, not only in the club, but in the Premier League? Um, there's a psychological element to address there, and, and it is certainly risky in the sense that what way does the player respond? Does he say, OK, well, I got my money. Um, they gave me the money regardless of my form being poor for several months. So they accept that this level of performance is satisfactory for them and I can carry on with it. Um, I think we saw against, as much as you can judge from one game, we saw De Gea make one of his trademark exceptional saves to keep Manchester United ahead very early in the match that um, if he hadn't made, they might well have um, lost that game. Certainly it would have been very difficult for them to take three points if Leicester had scored first and been able to play in the counter. So that's a good sign, but it's just one game. Um, and De Gea is an interesting personality. Um, he hasn't been happy in Manchester for a long time. He hasn't been happy that the club... Um, has limited his ability to win trophies because of the general uh, standard of players around him. So the, that element of discontent has been there. And um, can the reward of a new contract take all of that away? Probably not. Um, if you're unhappy with Manchester for lifestyle reasons, which primarily uh, revolve around his, his girlfriend, um, who does not live in Manchester, doesn't like the city particularly, um, and you're not happy for sporting reasons, um, the lifestyle reason isn't going to change. And the sporting reason, well, you, you know our views on Manchester United and their um, potential to win trophies at present doesn't look like that's going to be resolved anytime quickly. So that there's a risk um, in that side of the equation as well. What's definitely the case is that Edward could have done this deal for less money earlier. As far back as 2017, De Gea was asking Manchester United for a new contract, a contract extension. He was happy with his status and position at the club, the, the trajectory the club was on, um, having won the Europa League and um, looking like uh, serious candidates to compete with Manchester City for the Premier League title at the start of that season. Woodward wasn't interested in talking to the player at that stage. Um, there was no contract offer um, in early 2018, even though you'd seen reports that he was very close to signing a deal. Actually, no contract offer had been made. Woodward went missing during uh, part of this negotiation process, so there'd be long periods in which... Um, De Gea's people did not know what Woodward was going to do, whether he was going to come back with an improved offer. So that, the, the, the sum of all of this allowed De Gea to get into the final um, unilateral extension uh, season of his last contract, um, which was already very well paid. 
and raised the possibility that he could leave the club for nothing next summer. Um, allowed uh, discussions to go on with clubs like Paris Saint-Germain, Juventus. As we said on Monday, Paris Saint-Germain did want to buy the player last summer. Um, were involved in discussions with Manchester United over a transfer fee. Edward would refused um, to accept the offers they made. Paris Saint-Germain changed their sporting director from Antero Enrique to Leonardo. Leonardo did not like the idea of signing De Gea. Paris Saint-Germain pulled out of um, discussions and any attempt to sign the player. Um, Leonardo apparently made it clear that he wasn't even interested in signing the player under freedom of contract in a year's time. So effectively, they were moved out of the discussion. Um, people around De Gea made inquiries as to other clubs who might sign him, um, including, um, interestingly, Arsenal uh, were one of the clubs who were asked whether they'd be interested in taking De Gea uh, either in the summer past or as a free agent in a year's time. And I think that question was put because of the form of Bern Leno. Um, Arsenal said, no, not interested, too expensive. That basically was the message coming from around Europe, was that um, no major club were prepared um, to sign De Gea um, for the money he was asking for, for that high salary that he eventually got at Manchester United. He didn't have another suitor. Um, in Europe, as things stood at the point where that new contract was signed with Manchester United. So you can add that to the equation and say, um, possibly uh, Woodward has overpaid for the player because he didn't have an alternative offer elsewhere. Um, and the likelihood of one arising would be dependent on his form picking up and and, and openings, uh, you know, clubs who decided that they didn't want him at the asking price for salary, changing their mind because he'd had a good season and, and getting involved over the coming months. Um, I think it's actually quite a difficult one for Woodburg because he'd taken negotiations so far down the line and made an offer at a certain level, which was already very high and was higher than, than De Gea would receive as a free, free agent or would be likely to receive as a free agent in a year's time. It's quite hard to go back and then say... Um, I'm aware that your value has decreased on the open market, so that offer I made you, um, I'm now reducing that offer. And what, what I give to you is what your market, a reflection of your current market value. I don't know whether De Gea would accept that. You can see how that would be a complicated negotiating stance, and you could see how that would make it very difficult for Solskjaer to have a contented um, performing De Gea in his squad uh, this season. But you also have to say that Woodward made that rod for his own back by not um, negotiating the contract at an earlier stage in 2017 when De Gea actually wanted to extend and was keen to commit his future to the club. So it's it's a messy situation. And once again, and that, you know this isn't a new story, once again, Ed Woodward's Manchester United end up handing over a contract of huge financial value, um, which didn't need to be of such great value um, to a player who isn't at the peak of his form at present. Um, so again, there's obvious question marks about the actions of Woodward as a chief executive and whether he is, is operating in the most efficient manner 
um, with the you know the very large resources that Manchester United have available to them when it comes to recruiting and, and retaining football players. Two points come to mind, Duncan, as a result of these negotiations being concluded. The first is um, this seems to um, explicate, indeed, um, make Manchester United almost uh, nude, if you like, in terms of their ability uh, to retain or indeed recruit new players because they obviously don't think they can find a replacement for De Gea at that level and that they're forced into paying over the odds on a contract for a player who I think we've all seen um, deteriorate in terms of his form in the past six to nine months. Uh, So effectively, you're gambling or rolling the dice on someone who either can get back to those very, very exceptional levels um, of performance that we've seen from him at Manchester United in years uh, that he's been there, or um, that you're effectively just giving the fans something that they want, which is because De Gea is a very, very uh, popular and admired player. Uh, Old Trafford, you're just basically saying, well, we're just going to have to give whatever we have to to retain him. One, because we don't want to lose him for free. And secondly, because we don't see a replacement out there who we can actually attract to the club and uh, and make that work. Now, the second issue, which is one which is I'm sure will absolutely become um, a talking point in the Manchester United dressing room, is you've just made the goalkeeper the best-paid player. Now, that is a very, very unusual situation that any football club, never mind an elite football club, to make the goalkeeper the best-paid player because what that does automatically is winds up other players who are outfield players and more, if you like, superstar status or whatever you want to call it. And, of course, one particular French midfielder comes to mind here whose nose was put well out of joint when Alexis Sanchez joined the club on a higher salary than him. Now, if it's the case that De Gea is now earning the same or possibly even more with bonuses included than Pogba, and we know Pogba was already the subject of interest from Real Madrid and stated himself that maybe it was time for a new challenge, you've got that to contend with now uh, in the dressing room with regards to a player. Now, professional footballers know their value, they know their worth. And if they look at another player in the dressing room who they think is not performing like them or is not as valuable as them, they will immediately go to their agent and say, get in and see the chief executive and tell him that I'm not happy, that this guy's getting this amount of money and this is what I'm on. And this is what happens at football clubs. Absolutely do not make any mistake. This is how football works. Now, I think the rod for their own back that they've made, not just in not concluding the contracts in 2017, as you said, Duncan, is that they've now created a situation in the dressing room whereby other players will look at De Gea and think, do you know what? This guy's, you know, conceding one goal every three games, four games as a mistake, uh, and I'm getting paid 100 grand less a week than him, and yet I'm scoring four goals in four games. And I think that's going to be a problem for Manchester United this season when it comes to either attracting new players but renegotiating contracts with existing players. Well, first, I think there's no question he can get back to the levels um, that he was at before, the very, very high levels. Remember, he voted Premier League's top goalkeeper by his peers five times in seven seasons. Um, 
there's nothing changed about his, his technical abilities. So this is a psychological question um, of whether he can get back to performing at that level. So, you know, we're not talking about an outfield player who's ageing and losing his pace, etc. Um, it's, it's just whether he is motivated to return. And that's why people are asking questions. Is it wise to give him such a big contract on the back of a run of bad form? And when other suitors uh, had dropped away. Um, is he the best paid player in the club? Yes, he is. That's my information. And the, and the reason he's above Pogba is that he had the, um, champ, the non-Champions League um, qualification um, 25% cut of salary clause that all the senior Manchester United have, players have in their contract waived for at least the first season of this new deal. So he's above Pogba um, in total value of contract. That, as you say, it sets a bar and it sets a bar internally. So you'll have questions if he doesn't perform to the expected levels from um, other players. It also sets a bar when... Manchester United next want to um, go for a very high-profile signing. Um, I think one of our one of our listeners has referred to Billy Gunnar Solskjaer's policy of only signing British as uh, making Manchester United Brexit FC. So, so perhaps we're only talking about Manchester United going for a, a, a big uh, star name from within the Premier League. But you can be sure whenever they go for that huge transfer and it will undoubtedly happen under Ed Woodward's um, leadership because that has been his way um, since he took over the club. He likes extravagant signings. He likes signings with big commercial appeal. They stayed slightly away from it this summer, but um, we've seen Manchester United's transfer policy waver all over the place season after season. So it will happen again that they go for a big money move for a player. That player's agent will say, top salary at the club, David De Gea, um, 13.5 million net a season. That's our starting discussion point um, because you want to bring someone in to be the star of the club and we, you believe this is the player to, to bring in and we believe he should be valued as the best paid player in the club if you want to bring him in. So it will cost further money down the line for sure. Um, and it will be a factor going forward. And that's always the case, as you say, when you hand out new contracts to players and why the, ca the calculation, the repercussions are always far more complex um, than, it, than the, you know, the simple analysis of this is how much we have to pay to keep the player or to sign a player. Um, we have the money, therefore we do it. Um, they're never closed deals. They're never, you can never look at one player in exclusion from the rest of the squad. It's, there's always ramifications of it and, uh, and factors that will go uh, reverberate downwards for several years. And of course, Doug, as we both know, the irony and consequence of situations like this is that unless you actually see the contract, which of course, you know, is unusual for journalists, if, you know, to be shown the contract of a player at a, at a football club, um, we do work on the information given to us by three, four sources, and they will come obviously from uh, players, agent or family, as well as the club uh, involved in everything else. But agents, in my experience, certainly tend to exaggerate the money because it makes them look better, makes their player look more important, et cetera, et cetera. But 
as you said, when another player or another you know, stellar signing is being lined up uh, to come to the club, they will not be given access to, example, David De Gea's contract in order that they can make their own demands. They will have to depend upon the reporting of these contracts, which, of course, again, makes it more difficult and more inflated to sign um, a new player uh, at a reasonable or indeed credible level. So it is um, an interesting part of the negotiation in terms of what comes out in the aftermath of what the player's actually earning. We obviously do our best here in the Transfer Window podcast to bring you um, the accuracy and I believe our record is very good with regards to that. Um, as you well know from the fact that Duncan broke this story and confirmed it last Friday. Now we're going to go to um, a bit of Champions League action from Tuesday night now because Liverpool and Chelsea were in action and um, we've had several questions uh, about Liverpool's away record in Europe. They've now suffered five defeats in their last seven away games. Again, um, they lost 2-0 to Napoli last night. It seems to be a fixture of Jurgen Klopp's side that they can afford to lose away games, but Fortress Anfield allows them to recover from that. And clearly, last season's Champions League was an example where they lost all three away games in their group stage, but still qualified. Duncan, what what is going on at Liverpool that they don't seem to be able to be as consistent away from home in Europe as they are at home and indeed in terms of um, providing results which got them all the way to the final and indeed to win the Champions League last season? Well, I guess we have to add into those um, you know seven away fixtures the the Champions League final which they won, um, which was I suppose a neutral fixture, but it was away from home, so that that gets added um, to the plus account. Um, and you have to say that they they did come up probably with their best performance of the Champions League campaign last season, away from home. Um, to eliminate Bayern Munich in the first uh, knockout round. So it's not such a big problem that it's stopping them winning the trophy, even if Jurgen Klopp has been honest about that European success and said they required good fortune to win the title um, and that they weren't the best team in Europe, um, but they were the best team at the right times. Um, Again, Napoli last night, is a, a, I think a very good game to watch, very entertaining game to watch because both teams played open um, and, and tried to beat each other in contrast to how Klopp approached that game in Napoli, the first away game of the Grand Champions League group stage last season in which he basically went to play a draw, uh, played very closed, created virtually no chances and, uh, and lost deservedly at the death of the game. They, they went for it last night. Um, they could have taken a result from the game. Um, it, w- it was one of those games where it looked like the first goal was going was to turn it in favour of the side who scored first. Um, we saw Jurgen Klopp complaining about um, the penalty that was given to Napoli, which I found um, kind of an odd complaint, given that Andy Robertson failed, dived into, lunged into a tackle in the box, failed to connect with the ball, with a striker who was always going to run across his path, um, had the, the, the colours of the shirts been turned around, I think Jurgen Klopp would have been um, 
claiming with all his intensity that a penalty should be awarded to Liverpool. Had an Napoli defender done the same thing to Mo Salah, for example, in the box. So I think I think the complaints were overdone there. Um, but really, does it make any difference to them in this year's Champions League? In this defence of the Champions League, they're in a group with Genk and uh, Salzburg. If they don't get through that group, something is badly wrong. They're definitely powerful enough to get results against those teams and get into the group stages again. And uh, and will certainly be contenders um, for the Champions League. I mean, they made the final the previous season. Um, they won it last year. They have a, a consistent record of getting through the group stages and getting through those knockout games one way or another. Um, yes, Anfield is a huge advantage to them. Um, and uh, and they have been dependent on it in past Champions League campaigns, but it's there. It's not something that's going to change. It's going to remain um, that psychological um, uh, support-driven uh, advantage and the pressure that's placed upon referees by that um, crowd at Anfield, um, and it won't change um, whatever happens to uh, to the team. So... Um, I think it's a minor road bump, really, rather than anything else for, for Liverpool last night's result. And a quick word about Chelsea under Frank Lampard. Obviously, his first game in charge of Chelsea in the Champions League, a competition which he captained uh, that team to victory in the famous win in Munich in 2012. Um, but to me, Duncan, like a team who were learning lessons, uh, harsh lessons, they played very well for um, much or the majority of the game only to be stung near to the end by a, a, a counter-attack move from Valencia who are, I think, an experienced and cunning team in terms of their own European experience. Um, and also, um, you could say it was defendable, the goal. Um, Lampard spoke before the game about um, speaking to his younger players about focusing for the full 90 plus four minutes because that's how Champions League games are won and lost. And unfortunately for him, it did seem to be the case that they lost a little bit of um, concentration towards the end of that match, despite the fact that they um, had obviously the opportunity um, to take something from it when Ross Barkley missed the penalty. One of those things, Duncan, we've, we've seen it obviously before this season between Marcus Rashford and Paul Pogba and now, um, you know, when Bartley comes onto the pitch, he has a, let's just say, a debate with William and um, Jorginho regarding who takes the kick. He's only been on the pitch a few minutes, but he seems very confident about taking it and yet he misses. As a manager, is that frustrating because you think to yourself, well, what the hell are they doing? Well, I think Frank Lampard came out after the game and said that Ross Barkley was a designated penalty kick taker if he was on the field. Yeah, but um, we both know, Duncan, that managers will defend those decisions, that kind of stuff on the basis that it, you know, it doesn't make it look like a big issue. And that's what Solskjaer did in the case of Pogba as well. But I think we both know in reality, and in fact, William said in the aftermath of the game, I wanted to take it. But Ross said he was confident and wanted to take it, therefore I um, demurred to him. I don't think, you know, we've got to read between the lines here as to what's actually the case and what is, you know, justifying what happened on the field. Well, 
I think Willian has to defend himself. We've got to remember that Willian is is going to be open to criticism for um, contesting Barclay's right to take the penalty. Therefore, he has to say, "Well, I wanted to take it," and and you know, Ross insisted on taking it. I've I've seen um, some uh, analysis on Barclay's penalties for Chelsea um, today and in pre-season in particular, uh, and he was. He has been a very effective penalty kick taker watching video of them. He took them well and scored them. So it does actually make sense that Barclay could have been designated as, as penalty kick taker when he was on the pitch. And we've seen from Frank Lampard's management that he has no hesitation in giving um, areas a great responsibility to younger players in the team and players who have limited experience in the Chelsea shirt. So um, it's certainly... If he was the taker and Willian then had that debate with him on the pitch, Willian didn't help Ross Barkley's cause in, in converting the penalty. I think, in general, um, Chelsea losing to a, a savvier side in the Champions League um, in those circumstances with some important players missing and a very young squad and you know an early injury to a player who's, who's done well for them this season, Mason Mount, isn't a great surprise. You can do well in the Champions League with young players. We've just seen Ajax um, get within seconds of the Champions League final with an extremely young squad, but it's unusual. And um, I think Ajax did it because of the, the supreme quality of their squad. Um, and yeah, would you choose Ajax's players over Chelsea's current team? I think you would uh, any time. So this is going to happen to Chelsea in those circumstances. They will they will drop points in the Champions League because it's it's a fine margins competition where experience matters, where you can be done at the end of a game by a a, a clever um, set piece move um, with a you know striker moving off the edge of the wall and and the players who should be looking at them. Um, allowing him to get away from him and score the goal, as happened. So you saw Jorginho and Tammy Abraham allowing um, Rodrigo to, to get in and, and convert. So these things are, are pretty much inevitable when, you, when you're relying on so many young players in a competition like that. And one of the interesting, other interesting things about the penalty was um, why it was given. Um, and Daniel uh, Wass of, of uh, Valencia did not, in my view, make an, any intentional attempt to handle the ball. Um, his arm wasn't above the shoulder. Um, in fact, his, his arm was only slightly out from his body and, and, uh, and pointed down towards the ground. So the, as the new rule is categorised um, and, and defined, um, it's very questionable whether that should have been given um, and, and given... After, especially with the referee having the opportunity to, to look at it on video and, um, and reassess whether he made the right decision. And I think it's you know another example of this new handball law causing problems um, at, at both ends of the field, um, having a different interpretation of what handball is depending on whether it's an attacker or a defender handling a ball, depending on what happens next in the box. And I just I'm just not sure the referees actually have a 
a coherent view of what handball is anymore. And remember, the rule is, isn't even phrased in a categorical fashion. It's phrased as it's usually handball if, and it's usually not handball if. It's, um, you know, we've talked about this. We talked about it when the, the law was introduced and we said it would cause problems in the Champions League and in the Premier League and all competitions going forward. And again, we're seeing um, those problems early in the season. Well, to round off your questions answered on today's podcast, we're going to Glenn at GL Lisney, who this is more of a kind of tongue-in-cheek statement, I think, Duncan, than it is a question. But his solution for Manchester City's um, defensive problems regarding, obviously, the um, absence of both Americ Laporte and John Stones um, for the next, uh, well, Stones, five weeks, Laporte, we think, till February... He might just be a Manchester United fan, Glenn. Is that true? Let us know. But he has said, just loan Harry Maguire to City! Exclamation mark. I can't afford to see Liverpool winning the Premier League. Not in this lifetime. Exclamation mark. Is that the um, the answer to the problem, Duncan? Well, I'm guessing he's either a Manchester United fan or an Everton fan, um, given <laughs> his explanation. But I would say... Um, if he wants Manchester City to win the league, is loaning Harry, Harry Maguire to them the way to help them or to um, ensure that they absolutely have no chance of uh, stopping Liverpool from winning the title this year? Short and sharp, as always, but not on the quickfire round sometimes. Your questions answered has been a pleasure as always, but of course, one of the highlights of the Wednesday podcast is the Donkey Award for this week. And uh, we have chosen to um, make a comparison, as we often do. You know, we're like very, very current on our politics, etc. We're going to give the Boris Johnson Bad Loser Award. Um, this is the Prime Minister, of course, who has lost six out of six of his um, motions in terms of being put to Parliament in his very, very um, short term as Prime Minister so far. And so we reckoned that we could give um, the Boris Johnson Award out. We're not going to make it in the image of Boris, obviously, because Duncan's much more handsome than Boris is. Um, but I am going to open the uh, golden envelope, as always, and give you, Duncan, the uh, three recommendations for this particular Donkey Award. The first, and we do miss him, is Arsene Wenger, who, let's face it, didn't shake hands with opponents if he felt that his defeat came in a bad way. He talked about his myopia when it came to decisions which went one way or the other, for or against. And basically, you know, he was Arsene, I think, uh, once said that, um, you know, he was not ever going to be a gracious loser because he didn't believe in it. So therefore, bad loser, um, number one, would be Arsene Wenger. Number two has to be the man who actually quoted himself um, for this particular uh, scenario, Jurgen Klopp, um, who has so far in the last six months that we can calculate blamed uh, length of grass, wind, as well as weather conditions for uh, negative results against Liverpool and uh, without actually being able to explain why his team didn't manage the conditions themselves. 
And number three, the legendary, legendary Lionel Messi. He's got to be cited for this award for the fact that he's retired from international football just because he didn't win anything with Argentina. Duncan, the award is up to you and I'm going to hand over the platform so that you can present that famous golden statue. Well, Lionel Messi did retire from international duty enough because he hadn't won anything, um, but he did come back again um, after um, getting the, the national team sorted to, to help him finally try and win that major international trophy. So we'll, we'll let him off with this one, um, although he still hasn't got that trophy, obviously. Jurgen Klopp, um, yes, uh, I'm maybe not the best loser in the world, but I'm not that bad, he said last night. Um, well, uh, moaning about that penalty decision that player got. Um, I'm tempted to, to give it to Jurgen um, because uh, just for just because he really is a bad loser. But because he is such a bad loser, I think he has to lose this one um, to Arsene Wenger, who, yes, you're right, um, one of the one of one of the great gentlemen of the sport, but never a gentleman really when he'd lost the games um, had a real anger about him and can you imagine what he would be like in the modern era um, with VAR to complain about and VAR to, to question when decisions had gone against them and he felt that uh, the, the replay had shown in his favour um, I think he'd be even worse than ever but on, on this bad loser theme let's just hope that um, Boris Johnson's uh, record of defeats extends into the Supreme Court this week <laughs> Duncan Castles with his incisive analysis, as always, people. Um, that's what he's here for. That's what you listen for. So um, don't forget to send him your comments on his choice for this week's Dunkey. You know we love to continue the debate with you. We have done today in your questions answered. And to continue it further, you can also reach us at Transfer Podcast as well as at Duncan Castles and at Garbos G. And as ever, and thankfully, and we need to say thank you to many of you who've logged on to iTunes and um, given us something back, which is a five-star review, which obviously ups our ability to engage the network further and indeed increase the audience so that we can all get together and have these kind of um, interesting discussions uh, three times a week that we do on the Transfer Window podcast. We will be back on Friday, as always, and we will bring you news as well as analysis on what's happened this week and what's going to be happening this weekend. For now, it just leads me to say we will see you through the Transfer Window then. Thank you for listening. Yeah.